We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. And I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. I am really excited. My guest this week is a real-life Lara Croft, Wonder Woman, and all-around total badass, Kinga Phillips. She is a writer, producer, and a TV host. She works with all the major TV networks. She works with Discovery, with Epics, with National Geographic. She came to the U.S. from Warsaw, Poland with her parents at five, tucked under the seat on the plane, she tells the story, and landed in Oklahoma. She grew up dreaming of being an explorer, and she actually does it for a living, unlike most of us. Here's to having a vision. We talk about a bunch of things and even get a little bit into religion and race. I do have to note that we recorded the conversation in May, so we don't talk about the most recent incidents, George Floyd and others, and we don't talk about the most recent wave of protest. But but unfortunately, this theme is uh, evergreen and always keeps coming up, and it comes up in my conversations with a lot of my guests. And if anything, I think as immigrants, we can offer a perspective on the subject On a completely different note, this week is Shark Week, and besides the regular Monday and Thursday episodes, I have recorded a bonus episode, so tune in tomorrow for my conversation with Kinga about sharks and marine conservation. Kinga is a shark activist, and she's on board of the Shark Allies, a nonprofit that protects sharks all over the world. Kinga is an endless source of conversation. She travels, she writes, she spearfishes and takes amazing photos. I'm obsessed with her Instagram. And here's our chat. Kinga Phillips on We The Aliens podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm excited to be on. Yeah, it's it's my first pandemic episode. <laughs> um, and it's odd. But it does seem that the theme of immigration and immigrants has become even more timely. I've been working on this project for quite some time, and I keep being worried that, oh, everybody's going to forget. And every time, some time passes, and it becomes even more real and even more timely, I feel. Definitely the case. Yeah. And so I usually start with three simple Uh, questions just to set up who you are and where you're from. So how long have you been in the States? I came to the United States in November of 1981 from Warsaw, Poland. Okay. And okay, from Warsaw, Poland. And does the U.S. feel like home? It does feel like home. I've been here such a long time and I've lived in multiple places that it absolutely feels like home. 
Did you say you lived in multiple places? I have lived in multiple places in the United States. We came from Warsaw, Poland to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And then I've been out in California for 20 years now. But before that, my parents lived in Idaho for a little bit. So I kind of considered that home. So I've hopped around the States, but it very much feels like home for me now. Yes. Okay. So backing up a little bit, do you know what made your family leave? I do know exactly what made my family leave. So my father, who was a geologist, was part of the solidarity movement in Poland And Can you tell our audience a little bit what Solidarity Movement is? Yes. So the Solidarity Movement in Poland was led by Lech Wałęsa, and it was basically a grassroots movement against the, the communist regime there. And my father, and it was an uprising of basically the working class against the conditions with within Poland. And it was incredibly successful. Lech Wałęsa went on to become the president of Poland. And my father was part of that. So when he was co-working as a geologist in Oklahoma, he was working with a company called the National Institute for Petroleum and Energy Research. And when he would come over and he would go to Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and he would meet with the people there and he would tell them the story about what it was like in Poland during that time. And under the communist regime, it was it was just difficult living. You know, and they knew that he had a young daughter and a wife. And at that time, you were given pieces of paper that would tell you how much food you could get. And then you would have to go stand in line for your eggs and your meat and your milk. And usually by the time you got to the front of the line, most of it was gone. And no one in the United States could obviously believe that because we live in such an abundant nation. And they said, wow, that's crazy. We want to help you get out of there. And he said, well, that's really impossible because right now they are not letting entire families leave Poland because they know you'll never come back. And they said, well, okay, let us see what we can do. And at that time, the people that he became friends with were rather affluent. They had a lot of land and cattle money in Oklahoma, and they contributed significantly to the political campaign of a Senator Don Nichols, a Republican senator in Oklahoma. And they wrote to him and asked for his help. And he appealed for us to be able to leave Poland as a family, but we still had to basically pretend that we were going on vacation and we were coming to Bartlesville for my dad's employment. And we did that. And we basically escaped Poland with a single suitcase each and made our family there pretend that we were leaving on vacation and left everything behind. And when we came here, my dad was actually visited in his office. He got a job here with the National Institute for Petroleum and Energy Research. And he was um, visited by a member of the CIA and they offered political asylum. And we ended up hmm. turning it down because we were afraid as a family, or my parents were, I was very young, I was five years old, but they were afraid that the government in Poland would actually come after our family there. So we turned down the political asylum and my parents hmm. went through the process of becoming American citizens the way everyone else would. So that's how we got here. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Do you remember actually leaving You know, it, it's funny when you're that young, you have certain memories and your memories blend with the stories people tell you and the pictures you see. And obviously as a five-year-old child, I didn't really understand what was happening. And I thought we were going on vacation. It was also the first time I'd ever flown on a plane. So apparently I was, isn't it, it's, it's kind of an incredible story. And I hid under the seat of the plane the entire way because I was so scared because I didn't understand oh. what this big flying thing was. 
And obviously, you know, my parents had to explain to me why we weren't going home and why this was our new home. And the Iron Curtain in Poland went up in 81, in November of 81, and didn't fall for 10 years until 91. So my parents basically having made this decision to come here and to give me a better life and to give themselves a better life could not see their family members for 10 years. They couldn't go back to Poland and no one could leave. So we couldn't see anybody for that duration of time. Well, and they didn't know that it would fall ever. I mean, they had no idea. Yeah. As far as they knew, they would never see their family again. This is the craziest part for me about people who left at that time was that decision to leave for good and never to see your yeah. family again. Absolutely. No Skype, no WhatsApp, none, none of that. It's hard enough with all of this. <laughs> Exactly. They didn't have just... they didn't have Zoom meetings. <laughs> they couldn't Zoom no. with the family. That didn't exist. So they made a decision that it gives me chills even telling you the story now that in order to to create this better life basically for me, they made a decision to never see their family again. And that's an incredible amount of bravery. I don't know that if I was given that same choice right now that I would be able to do that. And right now I think I'm the same age as my dad when when he left. Wow. Yeah, it, it is also very impressive that they they were not young people. I mean, not not th not like in their twenties, not in, no. not teenagers. They were adults. They've had a life. They've had a career there. There, there's like a whole there's a lot to give up. It's a lot to give up because my father obviously had to start from scratch here in his career. You know, he has a PhD in geology. He was doing quite well there as well as you could do. And here he kind of had to start at the bottom and work his way up again. My mom was a pharmacist, a European trained pharmacist in Poland. And when my parents came here, she was told that she is not allowed to practice pharmacology because she would have, the pharmaceutical industry here is so strong and so heavy handed that in order to have a U.S. honored pharmacology degree, she would have to go through school again. But obviously, they, they needed income. So my mom, a very highly educated, went into cleaning houses and then worked as a lunch lady in the school after my sister was born. So it's it completely uprooted and turned their lives upside down. Yeah. I always wonder, what is, it the be what is the best age to leave? Sometimes I envy people like you who came at a very young age. Uh, I came here when I was 25 after college, after I already started my career, I came here for graduate school. So I kind of had to start over. Um, but I value things that much more because I know what happened, why I did it. And I know the difference. <laughs> what do you think? There's not really a right answer to that, I think. I think it, it's definitely an individual situation. You know, obviously, the ease of integration is something much better done when you come at a younger age. I was five years old. I also didn't speak English. I, Polish was my first language. So there are so many comical stories that you could honestly make a, a you know, multi-camera TV show about with this little immigrant family coming to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And we were a bit of a novelty. There 
people were lovely to us. I have to say no one treated us badly. The, the church got together and like provided all these things for us. There was a Polish family in Bartlesville that we stayed with. I didn't speak any English and my my mom didn't speak any English. My dad did a little bit. So when they put me into school, the, the funny story that all my friends love is that I got put into first grade, which would have been corresponding with the age that I was, but somehow it escaped the the school system that I didn't speak any English. So I would sit there in class and they thought I had a mental disability because I would never speak. And then there was an incident where a girl tried to take my pencil and I like snatched it back from her and scratched her. And they were like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with this girl. She's aggressive <laughs> and angry. This child, yeah, this child, there's something wrong with her. And they brought in an expert. And he, I remember my mom saying that he came out and he was like, wow, everybody, how did you guys miss that this little girl does not speak English? She doesn't understand. So I actually got held back and I got put into developmental first. And so I was always the oldest one in my grade because I got pushed back a year. So that was a really funny thing. And I even, my parents have DVDs that they've given me of me trying to learn English. And it's my little voice speaking Polish and trying to learn English words and getting super frustrated. But the incredible benefit of coming at that age is that you are like a little sponge. I learned English. I don't even remember learning it. I just all of a sudden knew it because you're just immersed in it. So there is a wonderful benefit and there's an, a bit of ignorance is bliss in coming over at that age because none of those hard decisions fell to me. They fell to my parents. But like you said, coming at a slightly older age, even in your teens or 20s where you can comprehend what you left and why you left it, I think it's a very powerful thing as well. Do you remember what was your first impression? So you got off that scary plane you got from under the chair, under the seat, and uh, you got to Oklahoma? I remember little flashes of things. I remember that my first word that I learned in English was flower. And I remember hating pizza. And I remember all the kids ate pizza in America. And pizza is not really a Polish food. And I didn't like bread sauce. You don't really use that. And I remember thinking, this is really gross. Why do these kids love this? I don't want pizza. It's gross. And I remember being, you know, again, everyone was very nice to us. We were never mistreated or singled out. Like we were a bit of a novelty. They wrote a, a big article in the paper about us. You know, people wanted to meet us. We were these immigrants from Poland. It was a neat thing. But It was also, we were kind of strange. You know, my mom would make cabbage rolls and pickled pig's feet and people would come over and go, that is so gross. What are you eating? That is so weird. Do you remember your parents kind of setting up for you that what it is to become American or was there any idea of that in the at home? You know, I, I don't remember too much. I know my parents were very patriotic, especially my dad towards Poland. And so there was always this conversation of, wow, we're really glad to be here and we're really delighted to be in the United States of America. But my dad was always like, Poland is wonderful. Let me tell you why. And, you know, he would read me stories of the history of Poland and all these things. So I had a really good balance of the two, which was really nice. But then there were the contrast. It, it is, it is rare because it wasn't too far in the direction of, no, you're Polish, like make sure that that is always what you are. But, you know, there wasn't like, oh, now you're American, forget Poland. It was, they kept a very good balance. But there were the funny things that are actually quite sad in as far as the contrast that I could see. I remember 
going to the grocery store for the first time when we came. And my parents were so amazed at the variety. They were looking around and there were all these fruits and vegetables and meat. And if you wanted cereal, there were like 20 different options. There was nothing like that in Poland. If you made it to a store, there'd be maybe one box of cereal that you were lucky to get. And so my dad would take his camera and he would photograph the grocery store aisles. And I would pose like, wow, look at all this stuff. And at one point, the grocery store manager actually came to my dad and pulled him aside because he thought my dad was a spy for a competing grocery store because who else would be taking (laughs) photos of grocery store aisles? It was so, so funny. (laughs) That's hilarious. Spy for for Polish resistance. Really? I mean, and it, it, what a comical thing, because you think about the mindset of these two different people looking at it through different lenses. My dad coming from this country where this abundance just didn't exist. And then this grocery store owner thinking, wait a minute, he's probably spying from the grocery store down the street to find out what we have. So it's just one of those yeah. funny little lost in translation bits. That's hilarious. Um, so... How did your mom feel about, so your dad was very strong about Poland and, and, and giving you this background and what, what, how was your mom in that? My mom is, my mom is a wonderful person. She's one of the strongest people I know, and she does it with a sense of humor. And I've always respected her immensely for that because I honestly can't imagine what it would be like to leave your entire family behind and not know that you'll ever see them again. Also, your entire career that you worked for basically, quite frankly, just got flushed down the toilet. And now you are starting completely anew and you're doing something that maybe someone could consider beneath you at that point and your level of education, right? My mom went from being a pharmacist to cleaning cleaning toilets, essentially, and being a lunch lady and scooping mashed potatoes onto a plate. Not that those jobs are not valuable, but you understand what I'm saying, that someone who had a, a career... I completely understand. In Russia, there's a similar attitude, especially to people in service. It's It's very different in Eastern European countries. It's definitely considered beneath you. Absolutely. And, and it's just not on par with the career that you developed and the education and time that you put into that. And that's, that's, you know, the simplest way of putting it. My mom also did not drive a car because we came from Warsaw, Poland, where public transportation is really what everyone uses. Sure. So I remember my mom learning how to drive a car and mowing down a stop sign that we then had to pay for to the city. Oh, and just these hilarious beats Oh, I, one of one of the best stories is how my mom actually got her job as a housekeeper. She went in, someone told her that there was a, a placement, a job placement agency. Remember, this is Bartlesville, Oklahoma, a tiny little town in, in the Midwest. And they said, there's a job placement agency and you can go in there and you can get a job. And so my mom thought, oh, well, it's a, it's a job. Okay. So she put on it. She had brought from Poland. She had this fox fur coat, which, you know, you're here, PETA would attack us, but in Europe, people wore fur. And so my mom put on her fox fur coat, a dress, her, her big, tall boots and a beautiful hat. And she goes into this job placement agency thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to, to get this wonderful job. And she laughs about it to this day because she has such a great sense of humor. And she says, I walked in just dressed to the nines, looking fabulous. And this man looks at her like, what are you doing here? And she says, I'm, I'm here for employment. I am here to get a job. 
And he's like, okay, well, have a seat. And he looks through all his files and he's like, okay, so um, I have a job cleaning houses for you. And she was like, oh, well, okay then. I guess that's what I'm going to do. And she swept back out in her beautiful fox fur outfit and went to her job of cleaning houses. That takes a lot of gut, that's for sure. Did you ever feel any, mm, I don't want to say pressure, but responsibility to deliver for your parents' sacrifice kind of? Of course, you know, I've, my parents are wonderful in the sense that they never put that kind of pressure on me. They never made me feel like we gave up so much for you. Now you need to do this or that. But I think I did that for myself, you know, cause you, you do know, and especially as you get older and you start to understand the sacrifice that they made for you, you do feel like I need to make something of myself. And that's different for everyone. That's, that's not a money issue. That's not a power issue. It's not a fame issue. That is doing the best that you can with your life and living your best life because they basically opened the door for me. And the career that I have and the life that I have, I would not have anything close to that had we stayed in Poland at the time when we did. So I'm incredibly grateful to them. And they absolutely were such an encouragement for me to pursue my dreams because I knew what they had given up in order for me to be able to do so. That's quite impressive that they were supportive of your creative career. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So you went to school, you learned English. And then what was the dream growing up? What were you going to be? I wanted to work for National Geographic. And when I was a little kid, my, my dad is a scientist through and through, and we always had a subscription to National Geographic magazine, and I would always read it. I would devour the magazines. And then I would watch National Geographic Explorer if I was allowed to stay up that late on TV. Wow. And I, at one point, must have been nine or 10 years old, I wrote to National Geographic and said, I'd like to work for you. And they actually wrote me back and said, wow, kid, that's great. Stay in school and maybe you can one day. And I, the best part of that story is that I ended up working for National Geographic. I did a TV show for them in 2011 called America's Lost Mm -hmm. Treasures. And when we were doing the press tour for the show, I got to tell that story on air. And then when I got my publicity photo taken in the yellow rectangle for National Geographic, it actually made me cry because that was, that was the dream I had. I always wanted to travel and to tell stories. And I think as a young child, I didn't even know what capacity that would be in. So when I finally went to college and got a degree in journalism and minored in anthropology, to me, that was the ticket to seeing the world and telling great stories. But as a child, I don't think I really understood that. But I wanted to be an adventurer and explorer because that's what my dad was. We would take road trips. We would you know, explore nature. My dad knew everything about every rock and the stratification of, of you know, this mountain and what this was composed of. And I just loved that. That's, that's so amazing that you had such a specific dream, such a specific image of what you wanted. And you didn't Obviously, at that age, you didn't even know how to get there and what do you do to get there, but your path took you there. It did. It did. I mean, and that path, is it's not a straight path. It very rarely is when someone follows their dreams, but it did. And, and I, knew, I knew in my core that what I wanted to do was to tell. I didn't know that it would be in the TV space. I didn't know that it'd be in the written space, but I knew that I wanted to explore the world. I wanted to tell great stories. I used to sit 
at my desk when I was a kid and I would write stories. And then when other kids wanted to play like funny games, I would push them into playing either travel agent or I would play, even when I was in high school, this is actually kind of embarrassing. I must have been like the biggest nerd. I would force my friends to play Lewis and Clark with me and pretend we were on an expedition. And I would drive them out to like the middle of nowhere. And we would like pretend we were the first people ever to be exploring this area. And we would jump off cliffs into rivers and swim around and swim across to the other side and venture through fields. I'm actually surprised I had friends, the the fact that I made them do all that. (laughs) Well, you definitely had the creative spirit and somehow like you, you were really, really doing this your whole life. I have been, but, and again, that's, you know, that's what my parents brought into my life. My parents were both outdoors people and they were explorers and they were adventurers and they valued culture and they valued learning and reading and they loved animals. My, another funny story, when we first came here, my dad loves taking pictures. We probably have like 200 photo albums, which is great. This is before Instagram and Facebook, obviously. And my dad loved animals. And we, when we got to Oklahoma, there were certain animals there that didn't exist in Europe. And he was fascinated by them. Snapping turtles, coyotes, possums, raccoons. Well, the best way to see them up close would be dead on the side of the road as roadkill. So he was going, so we would pull over every time we saw a dead animal. And my dad was always, he's such a scientist. He always needed size comparison. So I would have to go stand by the dead animal. And then he would take a photograph of it for documentation of this dead coyote or this dead raccoon or whatever it was. Except for you'd keep growing. And then the proportion of those animals were growing too. (laughs) string down exactly exactly so funny crazy oh my god and you were not freaked out by the dead animals well I was so used to it at some point because we were such nature kids but when you see the photos and the look on my face in them you can tell that I'm not really happy to be squatting down next to this dead coyote in a field yeah I was gonna ask you like did you feel different when you when you were young when you were a kid growing up you know I I did. Obviously, my name was different. I recognized that I spoke another language. Uh, we ate different food than other people did. I never felt like an outsider, though. I almost always felt, and this is testament, again, to my parents and how they treated the situation, and quite frankly, to the people in Oklahoma who were kind to us and and took us under their wing. They never made us feel like we were weird. I mean, kids can be a little funny and kids can be a little mean, but it doesn't matter if you're an immigrant or not. Kids are just mean. But overall, it was almost like people thought it was so neat. And so I grew up thinking it was neat that we were European at heart and that we had a slightly different culture than everyone. And it also, because my parent, my parents were so big into culture, we didn't just come into Bartlesville and, and form a niche there and join a community. And that was it. Like we got invited to, for instance, a Southern Baptist church uh, when we first came and my parents, you know, had no idea what a Southern Baptist church was. So they said, yes, we'd love to come. And we came to this church service and we were the only Caucasian people in there. And it was the most beautiful service. And these people sang their hearts out and danced. And it was just such a gorgeous thing. And then we got invited to to a meal afterwards. And we were just so loved on and and invited into this community. And again, we we were the only white people there. 
And it it was a, a separate part of the community than you know a lot of the people in Oklahoma that that were Caucasian would attend. And so the fact that we were invited, we were embraced, and that my parents were so open culturally because you tend to be more open culturally if you're right. coming from Europe. We got to experience all these different facets of even Oklahoma than I think some of the people who lived there. For in. sure. Well, to me, the the race racial divide in the U.S was one of the big, biggest shocks because when you grow up outside and you watch movies, you kind of see, oh, you know, black and white people are kind of, you know, hanging out together, working together, doing things together. And then you come here and you realize how different it really is. That was mm-hmm. one of the big shocks for me. I came 10 years ago, so things have changed, obviously. And I'm living in Los Angeles. I never lived in Oklahoma where I'm sure the divide is different. It is. There are many places in the United States where it's still very strong. I went to school in Auburn and Alabama for a year, and I saw that divide there so shockingly and so honestly horrifying in, in many respects that it, it, it floored me that it still exists. You know, we say it's been a long time. Things are probably different. And in some ways they are. And in some ways they are not. Right. Do you remember any specific moments that kind of shook you up? Sure. Uh, several, actually. Um, when I went to school in Alabama and the American South, you know, there's there's the, quite, a, yes. quite a divide there. And I went to school at Auburn, and I remember there was this, this woman, she was out of New York, and she was Black. And she was a wonderful person, beautiful girl, quite frankly. I mean, any guy would would probably kill to date this girl. And I remember she became a friend of mine and she would come over and cry and cry and cry because she was dating some guy at a fraternity there and his fraternity brothers uh, told him that if he did not break up with her and use some very insensitive racial language, that they would kick him out of the fraternity. Wow. So, and that sort of thing, there was even a girl that I lived with who um, was unbelievably racist. And it was clear that that was just how she was raised. And there was language that I learned from her that I had never heard before in my life. And she would not go to the swimming pool in our apartment complex if there were any Black people there. And that I, I like that was jaw dropping to me. I could not wrap my head around how in that. I mean, this was what year two thousand. How anyone could behave that way or see the world through such a limited and, quite frankly, ridiculous lens. But it, it existed, and I was back in Atlanta uh, a few months ago, and you still see it there. So it, it in some ways, it's changed. And, and I do feel happened. that. Every immigrant I speak to has this moment of realization that this exists here. And I think people here are so used to it that they don't even notice it, especially white people, let's be frank. And then to to people who come from outside, it's just, how the hell is this normal? And anybody who comes from outside has likely never witnessed or experienced anything like that. A person refusing to go to a swimming pool because there are people of a different race there. Where the hell does that exist? Yeah. And I feel that 
in a way, this immigrant perspective where coming from outside, we can say, hey, this is not cool. This is not normal um, is beneficial. It is. And I think there is a scary thing about allowing status quo to be status quo and just saying that's how it is or allowing generation after generation after generation to have the same experiences without coming to a screeching halt and saying we need to change something. I mean, I think if there's ever been a more painfully obvious time in history, it, it, it's it's right now when we're starting to see that divide. And the divide isn't only on a racial level, us against them sort of thing, which I do feel here, mm-hmm. especially now because of the coronavirus situation. But it's also, there's a level, and you know, the word ignorance to me means not educated in a certain space. So when I say ignorant, I don't mean a complete idiot, although I have used that word a lot lately. But I'll just say that I have seen a lot of ignorance from Americans as far as the world and experience. And you see this behavior that is shocking to me. And it's a lack of experience and a lack of education. For example, watching you know these protests against the lockdown of coronavirus or wearing masks or whatever it is people want to protest that it's a hoax, I don't even know anymore. Yeah. You see people holding signs that say, this is communism. Yeah. And I actually screen grabbed that and I sent it to my parents and we had a good laugh about it because I had two, two trains of thought about that. One, whoever was holding that sign clearly has no idea what communism is because under a communist regime, you don't have freedom of speech, so you would never be allowed to hold said <laughs> sign. And two, I thought, right? And the second thing I thought was, wow, I am actually so happy for you that your life has been so free of conflict on a greater scale, meaning war, civil war, you know, government overreach at a at a level that is of communist nature per se, or or dictator that these people think this is communism. And there's something so naive and so ridiculous about that, that in this country, which is so wonderful and it is my home, but I fully acknowledge that a lot of the people here, a lot of the current generations have had very little to deal with as far as real conflict. And I understand that's all relative, but when we're talking about war and we're talking about oppression, we're talking about lack, I mean... My parents could not have been laughing harder when everyone here was buying up toilet paper and they were afraid that like, oh my goodness, the stores aren't going to be able to restock. We need to hoard everything. And my parents were like, we're used to this. What are these people talking about? It's just a funny perspective that I think Americans are having to face for the first time in their life. And they also don't like to be told no. Like I have many times in the last few weeks said, wow, I feel like this country is acting like a bunch of spoiled brats, you know, saying, no, we don't want to be locked down. We don't want to wear masks. Like if this is the worst thing that's ever been asked of you, you've got a great life, people. You've got a really great life. For sure. For sure. It's it's funny that you mentioned that uh, your parents were laughing at people stocking up. I kind of had the opposite reaction. I, I was not laughing. I I did stuck up. I did not stuck up on toilet paper needlessly, but I did stuck up on food, <laughs> which was actually lucky because I did that two weeks before everybody else did. And when everybody, you know, was 
buying everything and there was nothing at the stores. I was just staying at home and then stores obviously got restocked and everything is fine. But I missed that moment of everyone freaking out and I didn't have to face those lines and, and crowds of people. But I had this moment where when I heard about the the pandemic coming, I kind of had this realization earlier than the majority of people. And because you don't know what's going to happen and because I know the history of my family and I know that uh, hunger happens, uh, countries fall apart, uh, regimes do get toppled, things like that actually happen in real life. Uh, it's not imaginary world. I was like, okay, well, not that I thought that, you know, America will fall apart immediately or anything like that. But I thought, okay, well, I, ca I can just go and buy a few things to, to stock up in advance. And I felt a little bit crazy. But at the same time, I felt this odd connection to my great grandparents and grandparents who were going who were living through you know a uh, revolution in Russia when Russian empire fell apart when uh when world war 2 broke out when soviet union fell apart because i do kind of remember those empty shelves and at the grocery stores and no food and that kind of stuff and that moment of going to stock up um, made me feel more connected to my family in that way and realizing, okay, like it's my turn to go through tough times. Obviously, thank God, as of now, we're nowhere close to World War II situation and, you know, God forbid. But that feeling of uncertainty certainly kicked in. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point is that everyone responds from their base of experience and the lens through which they have seen life. And I think that is an excellent point. And with that, you also had a balance because, you know, stocking up and feeling like, wow, we are on very uncertain ground right now. We don't know what's coming next is one thing. But recognizing that this is not a world war and that we are not in completely dire straits is another thing. I think what I always look at in life or, and where I try to place myself is balanced. I, I don't like extremism of yeah. any kind. I don't like extremism of, it, I don't even, you know, I, I've been a Democrat my whole life. I don't even consider myself that anymore. I consider myself independent in the middle because I'm starting to see this extremism on both sides. And I don't agree with either side, to right. be perfectly honest. I like this, this nice place in the middle because I think that's a rounded place where you can utilize all the experience of your life and also logic and reason and research and to understand what's happening in a situation. So I don't fault anyone for how they saw the situation when it first started because it was incredibly uncertain. The world has never seen anything like this. Where I start to like giggle at people or sometimes get frustrated with them is when they take things to the extreme and it becomes almost a hysteria because 
hysteria in any situation is never going to help it. It's, if anything, it's going to do the exact opposite. And as you know, we were, and I did the same thing, you know, I, I went online and, and bought food. That's another benefit that we have now is like, you don't even have to go to the grocery store. You can do it in on Amazon or, or Whole Foods or the grocery store and they'll bring it to you. We're very fortunate in that way. But at the same time, I think what did make my parents and me uncomfortable is less the infrastructure of we might run out of food or this or that. It was more, how are the people going to react to this? And then, of course, we started getting the news that since the FBI started keeping records of gun purchases, this this March was the highest number of guns purchased in the United States of America. And I sat with that for a long time and really thought about it. And I thought, well, okay, I want to be understanding. And as a journalist, my job is to have a, a broad comprehension of the different ways that people think. And I, I always try to do that. And I understand that in uncertain times, people want to protect themselves. I understand that in uncertain, you don't know what's going to happen. But I also wonder how much of that is this very American, almost, I, how do I put words to this? I wonder if these people were thinking rationally and logically and saying, okay, I should maybe have something to protect myself in case of X, Y, and Z, looters coming from my house, looters coming from my food, whatever. I did talk to some people who felt that way. Then you have people who wanted weapons because as many Americans are, they're afraid of the overreach of the government. And we had all these rumors going around about martial law and we'd be locked in our homes. And then you have all the conspiracy theories about this is the government just trying to get us off the street so they can control Mm -hmm. us further. So you have people buying guns for that reason. And then there's like a third faction of people in this country that I think honestly buy guns because they've seen The Walking Dead and too many zombie (laughs) movies. And they just see themselves as like Rambo and this like total badass. And that's the, that's the, that's the section that scares me quite a bit because there's not a lot of rationale and logic there. I think it's just, I got to have weapons. And those are sort of the last people that I want to be armed, to be honest. The guns were the, one of the big shocks for me too when I first got here there were the always I always say that there were the four things that shocked me it was race religion money and guns and the way those four things impact American society and uh-huh. tell me uh, tell me about religion I want to I want to know why that's on your list because I have that on my list as well and I'll, I'll explain to you why but I want to hear right. why you put it on well yours. uh I come from Russia I grew up in a kind of agnostic, not really atheist, but say agnostic, vaguely spiritual with sporadic Russian Orthodox tradition, you know, family. My family believes in God, but never went to church or never really observed anything. And I was baptized when I was eight, but I never really became part of church. And frankly, there was a moment uh, when I lived in Israel and after five months in Jerusalem, I became fully agnostic and even moved further away from religion. Um, Interesting. Because after living in Jerusalem, I had this very strong 
aversion to organized religion because I saw it how in Jerusalem, I don't know. Have you been? I have. Yeah. I don't know what your feeling was, but I lived there for a bit and that tension between religions, the, the mm-hmm. Muslim, Christian and Jewish people in this town that is the center and the source of all of this is so palpable. Yes. It was just, it felt just so wrong and the opposite of the whole point. Yes. Um, that I just couldn't make peace with it anymore. That's so interesting. And I'm sure living in a place opens up a whole different way of seeing that area than just visiting there. I was there filming for a show in 2012 or 2011. Mm-hmm. And it I thought Jerusalem was beautiful, it was wonderful. But even as a visitor there, you can feel that tension. And it's, you're right, it's an, it's an interesting thing to acknowledge that these belief systems that should be bringing people together, in fact, tearing them apart. And um, um, I'm sorry. And, and going back to, to the shock in, in the States, in Russia, well, just as the most basic example, any politician in America, when they say any kind of speech, they finish with God bless America. In mm-hmm. Russia, Nobody ever says God bless Russia because God is, I guess, Russia inherited this kind of secular atheist uh, government in a way, which is now deteriorating and church is having more and more impact on things in Russian society. But still, separation of church and state is pretty clear and religion and religious views of a person are never really part of any conversation. Whereas here, it is always like, oh, is this person Catholic or are they Christian or are they, which is also a confusing conversation to me because in my mind, anybody who believes in Christ and Chris is Christian, Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, but like that's semantics. Um, but yeah, like, religion and church are not part of the conversation. Because I think for most Europeans, it is a very personal thing. And that exactly speaks to the experience that my family had. And it was another round of comedy with religion because my family coming from Poland is Roman Catholic. My parents believe in God. I was I was raised Catholic. Uh, I still pop into church sometimes. But for me, religion has been very personal. And that's how it is in Poland. You know, you have little old ladies going to church to pray the rosary. They're doing their thing silently, quietly. People aren't holding Bible studies. It's, you know, there aren't televangelists on television. I mean, it's it's a completely different space. So when we came from Warsaw, Poland to the center of the Bible Belt in Oklahoma, one of the, the first groups, like our church there, there was a Catholic church and they were lovely and, and they helped, you know, provide us with, with things in the beginning. And that was a church that we went to the entire time that we were there. But there was also what my parents could not grasp was that suddenly they were constantly being invited to Bible studies. And it was one of the first questions, like you said, oh, are you, are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Catholic? And my parents were like, who, who 
cares? Like, what? Why are you asking me this? Like, it's kind of like saying to someone, what's the color of your underpants? Like, well, it's none of your business mm-hmm. what color my underpants are. They're my underpants. So it was a, a very strange thing. And I love this comparison. It's, right? My underpants, leave them alone. And as I grew yeah. up in school there, they there were all these Christian groups. I remember there was K-Life and there was this and there were all the Bible studies and all the cool kids were part of these groups and they would constantly invite me. And I was like, mom, dad, I want to go to this group. Like, oh my gosh. And my parents were scared of these groups. And they were like, no, you, we don't want you going to that. Like it feels very cultish to us. It does not feel religious the way we know religion. It feels very showy. And it, people would base their friend groups on which church they went to. And, you know, they would hang out with only people that like went to their Bible study or this or that. And that that's a beautiful thing to a degree for people. But when it starts to become exclusive rather than inclusive, which is usually what these things become, that's when it starts to get scary. And as I grew older, and because I had grown up in a Catholic household, like I had read the Bible, I, I was very well versed in it. So there were all these strange moments whenever people would would come up and they would say, I remember reading the Harry Potter books when I was still in Oklahoma and someone came up to me and said, oh, why are you reading those? Those are like the devil's work. They're about witches and warlocks. And I, I just burst out laughing. I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Oh, wow. Or one thing... I mean, it's funny, right? It's it's kind of hysterical. And something that that always got to me when I would have conversations with people is I respect anyone's view and anyone's val- set of values if they can have a conversation about it and if they can back up why they believe what they believe. And you know, that actually applies to the conspiracy theories that go on today. But back in the day, I would I would ask people, you know, well, why do you think that the Harry Potter books are bad? I mean, they're entertainment, they're fun, they're cute. Well, because they're about witches and warlocks and magic is evil and that's what the Bible says. And I'm like, but why? Like, why do you think that? And no one ever had an answer. It was always because. And I lost a lot of respect for that because to me, if you can't tell me why you believe something or why you think that something is right or wrong or, you know, gray area or whatever, if you can't explain to me and if you can't have a conversation or a debate with me about that, then I don't actually think you believe what you think you believe. I think you're just regurgitating information that you've been fed. And that's overall kind of the feeling that I had with a lot of these groups and a lot of these Bible studies. And again, some of them were lovely people, but it felt very much like people not questioning anything and outwardly projecting it rather than making it something unique and personal and specific to them. For sure, for sure, and that that's not only in religion. That's that's in uh, all kinds of indoctrination, and we, we talked about of politics course. and um, yeah. Like to to me, the the shocking part was not so much in the community because I didn't necessarily um, uh, interact with a lot of religious people. For me, and I guess that's my sort of way I look at things I'm, I'm a lawyer by training so I I look at things through that lens and the impact the religion has on policy in the United States how in different states religion has a very specific impact on people's lives on a political level on the level of the law sure in southern states versus you know um coasts 
it, it was a shock to me that that can exist within one country. Yeah. That kind of difference. So Phillips, tell me about it. Mm-hmm. Phillips is a stage name. My real last name is Spakevich, S-Z-P-A-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z. So it's clear why I don't use it. But I had this super weird name in a, in a school where all the kids were Anna and Sarah and Mary and, you know, kids are mean. So I was king of the jungle and king of Conga and I couldn't take it anymore. So I went by my middle name, which is Anna. But of course, mm-hmm. everyone here called me Anna. And so I was Anna for, for like 10 years because I didn't want to go by Kinga because it was embarrassing. Kinga is so cool. It is now. Now I'm like, wow, I have this unique name and it has a backstory with this Hungarian princess who went to Poland and discovered salt and then became a saint and has a salt mine. Now I'm like, wow, I love my name. But back then you don't want to be different, especially when you come into a a, a town, a small town of 40,000 people in the Midwest where the last thing you want is to really stand out. So when I first came to the entertainment industry 20 years ago as Kinga Anna Spakevich, the first agent I had was like, yeah, forget it. No way. There's no one wants someone with that name. And also it would just be a distraction because no one can pronounce yeah. it because it's also spelled S-Z-P-A-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z. And there's an S-Z that makes an S-H sound and a W that sounds like a V and a C-Z that makes a C-H sound. And it basically okay. just blows American minds. <laughs> so she said, find a new name. And I went, oh, okay. I mean, that's a challenge to find a new name. And I started looking around phone books. I looked all over yeah. the place and I couldn't find anything that really worked for me. And I remember this verse in the Bible, it's Philippians 4.13. And it says, I can do all things through, whom, through him who gives me strength. I have learned the secret to be content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I went, wow, if there's ever been a verse that sums up the entertainment industry, that is it. Because you are constantly living in plenty or in want. You are well-fed or you are hungry. There's really no in-between. So I took that name and that's why... For life overall, it's a great verse. It's a great verse, isn't it? Like it just reminds you, like it's, you're going to have highs, you're going to have lows, you're going to get through it, just keep going. And, but the funny thing is that when I cut it out of Philippians, because I took it exactly as it's spelled there, it's spelled with one L and two P's. And me trying to make it easier have actually made it harder because now people just assume that it's regular Phillips, two L's and one P. So constantly I don't get emails to my email account or it goes to television misspelled constantly. So it's kind of like the funny comedy of I try to make it easy, but it in fact was not. That's funny. That's <laughs> funny. But I love the, I love the, I love the verse. Well, so it says I found the secret. Does it say what the secret is? I think it's in, because it's a Christian verse. And then the final line, it's, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's saying that when you rely on God, you can get through anything. So, but you can apply that as a religious person, or you can just apply that as someone who isn't a religious person. Because like you said, it's not just the entertainment industry, it's life. So I think like you said, it's a perfect verse for life in general, because whether you are living in plenty or in want, and that can be anything, that can be money, work, love, happiness, health, you name it living in plenty or in want, well-fed or hungry. And again, you can apply that any way you want. 
And then where you find your strength and where you find your source to get through that is unique for each individual. So you can make that a Christian statement or you can make that a core value statement, whatever, whatever applies to you. I think that's great. Um, okay, so let's go back to your, uh, your story. So you graduated as a journalist and you dreamt of becoming a National Geographic traveler. What, yeah. And then you became one. So what happened in between? Well, I moved out to Los Angeles because I knew I never wanted, as a journalist, I knew I never wanted to work in news. I did not want to be, you know, the person reporting on a, on a house burning down in a town. I wanted to do something broader. I wanted to do something global. And I came to Los Angeles and I vacillated. I did acting for a while, which was so much fun. I liked creating the characters, but I also always gravitated towards the travel element and the storytelling element, which is, I think, why I liked acting too, because there was, there's much storytelling in that. But the first job that I ever got, like you can call it a job because I, I wasn't paid for it, but it didn't matter because I found in a newspaper, which is how you got jobs back then. This was like 2000. And they were advertising for the show called E-Travelers. And it was a pilot to go to Hawaii and to film this show. And it was really, really novel at the time because it was the idea of like, you can book your whole trip on the internet. And wow, did I just date myself? Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, like, what does E stand for? <laughs> yep, exactly. It was all about the internet and how you could just plan this whole trip and organize everything. And like, you know, everything is available at your fingertips via the internet. And so amazing. we went to, I got, it was, it was amazing. And I got hired for this job. And I remember them asking me if I had any fears and I was like, no, I have no fears. I was terrified of heights at the time and of spiders. No fears. But I was like, Great. no, no, no. I really want, I really want this job so bad. So I got the job. And it was a wonderful team of people who I still keep in touch with. And ironically, it was a tie, it was a pilot for the Travel Channel, which I work for now. And we went to Kauai for two weeks. And I just thought I was Angelina Jolie and I had made it. We they had all these sponsorships. Like we stayed in these beautiful hotels. I was sharing like a, a studio apartment with another girl at that time. We were sleeping on two couches <laughs> because the woman who owned this place like refused to move her furniture out. So she had one couch. I had another couch. And so wow. here I am in this magnificent, the Princeville Resort in Kauai. And there was a bouquet of flowers that said, Welcome, King of Phillips. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a, this is amazing. Like, wow, I really made it. And it was just such a cool experience. It never got picked up, but it was my introduction into that world of travel. And it also just hooked me. I thought, this is what I want to do. And after that, you know, there was also a period of time, which still exists a little to a point, but it's gotten much better, where women just didn't exist in that space. There were no adventure travel hosts. If anything, if there were females in travel on television, it was Samantha Brown, who I love and she's wonderful, but she would go to hotels and drink at cafes. Like she, she wasn't rappelling down waterfalls and scuba diving and, and, you know, kayaking rapids. It, it, that just didn't mm -hmm. exist in the female space. And so I would, I would get pushed into by agents. They would go, okay, well, we have this red carpet show for you to do. And I'd be like, okay. So I'd go do this red carpet. And I was so annoyed. I didn't like it. I didn't want to ask people what they were wearing because I was like, why the hell do I care what you're wearing? Like, it's stupid. You paid how much for that? Wow, I could buy a plane ticket for that. Good for you. So it, it honestly annoys me. <laughs> I, I can totally relate. It's just, 
it's it's a comedy of the red carpet world as, as lovely as it is for some people and people love it it's a comedy of errors for me i just didn't fit into that world and so i really started pushing towards doing more in the travel space and the adventure space and it was hard because i would go in for meetings and they would say to me we want anthony bourdain or we want laura croft and i was like okay that's a man and a fictional character because there was no female in that space that actually they could they could compare me to and it was kind of an amazing thing because when i started working for travel channel i think the first show i did for them was in 2013 and it was called the wild side with king of phillips and i was the first adventure travel female host they had ever had on their network they had had other females on their network and they like samantha brown was amazing they had, had definitely had other women but there yeah. had never had a female in the adventure travel space That's and crazy. i got to do that and that was really cool isn't that crazy and that was i mean that was 2013 and it's still you know to this day i'm i'm not going to name networks by name because they are the hands that feed me but there are still mandates from big networks that everyone would recognize where the mandate is A-type males only, no nagging secretary types. And there are that, – that is an actual mandate that came down. That's the wording? Email. That is the wording, yeah. They want A-type males, they, and females are considered nagging secretary types. And there were even – my experiences in the first show is that I really finally started to break into the adventure travel space, and I would only get That's hired so as a sidekick to a guy. It's so ugly, it, and it still exists. It was very ugly. And there were shows that I did and I was the sidekick. And if I said something that was mm. remotely too intelligent, they would cut it and they would say, oh my God, that's great. You were just talking about the karst topography of the layout of the land. And that is, that is great. But can you have him say it? Because it actually sounds really intimidating if you say it. And I was like, you've, you've got to be freaking kidding me right now. You just took my words and you gave it wow. to the guy because people can accept that language from a man, but you can't have a girl talking about the geography and the geology of an area, even though my dad's a geologist, because it would be really weird and intimidating. So that those were the battles that wow. I fought in the beginning where I got very fortunate is that the executive producers that I had and the teams that I had were amazing and they fought so hard for me. I had Jim Morley at Travel Channel who fought so hard for me and even on the, now, now it's, it's definitely gotten better, but even Lost in the Wild, the show that I do for Travel Channel right now, our executive producer is a woman and she, mm -hmm. she is very conscious of making sure that that show is a balanced team effort between myself and my co-host JJ Kelly. And I love the show because of that. You know, you have two people who are a team rather than having a, a sidekick. So it's, it's a world that has evolved and changed. It still has a long way to go. But when I first came, man, it was it was an uphill battle. Wow. And that's very recent uphill battle. It's not Yeah. It's not like forty years ago no. or fifty years ago. No. We're talking in the last ten years this this has existed. Yeah. Weird. It's like a little corner mm -hmm. where somehow being a muscly guy, I guess, is, is more important. What is it that you're looking for in your travels? It's, you know, my personal travels, I am a big nature person. So when I travel for just myself, I want to seek out the ocean. I want to seek out places that are off the beaten path. 
And I write about those places a lot because I also appreciate things. I'm not an all-inclusive resort sort of girl. I'm a find a bungalow on the beach sort of girl. And I think those places are becoming more and more rare in our world, especially with with things like Instagram, where you know the beauty of it is that it does get people out in nature and it does help them to find these amazing places. But at the same time, it also kind of destroys those beautiful places because something that was, you know, a magnificent uh, space that you could go and not see another person for miles around, suddenly there are 500 people there because they saw it all on Instagram. So I started writing stories. Yeah. There was one that that I wrote for Inside Hook, and it was called uh, Off the Beaten Path, A Modern Nomad's Guide to a World Less Traveled. And I would compare, I would actually go into Instagram and I would see how hashtagged a destination is, and I would find an alternative for it. So for instance, um, I went to Tulum probably 15 years ago maybe more now. I took my parents there. And back then Tulum was a, I remember it was like a taco stand. And then there was a stray dog in this little <laughs> like outpost and you could just walk the beaches. Now it is Los Angeles on the beach and people go for yoga retreats and you know, they, it, it's all of that. Nothing wrong with that. But for my sensibilities, it's not what I'm looking for. So I wrote a story about Isla Halbosh, which is a little bit more off the beaten path than what Tulum used to be. Or I compared going to Petra to going to Lalabella, Ethiopia, where Petra is spectacular for a reason. But you see these Instagram photos and it looks like you're the only person there. I've been there. It is a mob scene. Whereas if you go to Lalabella, Ethiopia, if you're interested in ancient carvings of stone where people lived, there's no one there. So it is this world where you really walk a fine line because you want people to go have all these experiences, but you don't necessarily always want to be there with 5 million of them. Do you want to go to Cabo San Lucas or do you want to go to La Paz? Most people don't even know where La Paz is. So the phone, my travel writing, that's what I will always focus on is finding the alternatives for people to go these beautiful destinations. And I focus a lot on the marine environment and the ocean space because I love diving and free diving and in that world. So I tell those stories, but I love people stories too. You know, when, whether, if I'm working on a specific show, obviously my directive is then whatever the concept of that show is. But I love telling stories through the lenses of people that I meet along the way that are just unique and fascinating and how they live that's different than someone else. Right. Right. Well, how, how do you feel about world of travel in the current situation? <laughs> I mean, it just right now, it's, it, it's a great question to ask because no one has that answer. You know, all of us who are in the travel industry and working on travel shows, we are shut down and we don't know when we're going to be able to travel again. So I was just on the phone this morning with, with my friend who's the editor at Uproxx, which is a great travel brand. I've been talking to my executive producer at Ping Pong, the company that produces my show. And we've been really brainstorming about how we can develop shows or how we can mold our existing shows into this new environment where we don't don't know when we're going to be able to get on a plane and travel again. Every show that I had lined up for this year for 2020 is gone. It's been pushed to 2021. I was supposed to be on a, a show at the end of this year that traveled to South Africa and Peru and Malta. It's gone. It's 2021 because we just we can't do it. You legally can't. You have you know restrictions with insurance. They're not covering COVID. You can't get on a plane like you. A lot of countries are requiring a 14-day quarantine. We don't have time to do that. Yeah. Most shows we shoot it in a week. You wouldn't have a chance to go and sit somewhere for 14 days. So until things start to really 
develop and become more clear with where we stand in the travel space. Right now, I'm just camping and adventuring locally to where I can because that's all I have. Right. But I'm sure in the current situation when people cannot travel, the interest in travel content will, my feeling would be that it will even grow. Absolutely. I think any time that you aren't able to do something, you start to salvate even more for it. And that is exactly what we've been discussing in the production meetings that I've had lately is how do we give people this outlet and how do we give them travel content without actually being able to travel? So that is those are the conversations that I had this morning that I had yesterday. What can we do as content creators and storytellers to inspire people, to entertain people during this time within the restrictions of COVID-19 of just not being able to actually do the type of travel that we normally do for our line of work. Yeah. Yeah. So to be determined. Well, all the stock footage is now <laughs> com com comment on, on exactly. Stock footage. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Well, do you feel that your immigrant experience um, impacts the way you travel or you see things? I think it my my immigrant experience and also just the openness of my family. You know, I was born into a family that was all about travel and adventure and cultural exploration. I think a lot of people who don't have that experience at a young age it is more concerning to them or it's scary because it's different. Whereas I was taught and because I came from another country that it's exciting and it's cool and it's interesting and it's unique to see someone else's religion, their food, how they live, you know, how they, how they go by their business day to day. And that's what I enjoy, you know, for Lost in the Wild, we went to eight different countries. We were everywhere from up in the Himalayas in India, to remote villages in Zimbabwe, to Malaysia, to Philippines, to Ecuador. We went out to the Galapagos, to up the Amazon in Brazil. And in each place, people live differently. They practice their religion differently. They experience life differently. They eat differently. And to me, that's exciting. Like I want to try all the food. I want to see how people live. I want to see their homes. I, I, I love that lens. It's fascinating to me. And it doesn't make me feel different than them. It doesn't make me feel like we are separate. It actually unifies me to be able, because in everything there are, there's common ground in, in every life of every human. And I think with the more you travel and the more you experience that, you find that common ground with people. I, I wish more people would get out and, and travel. For sure. For sure. And I feel that in that sense, travel is kind of a smaller version of what, immigration experience is yeah. where immigration is where you have to fully immerse into a completely different culture. And I compare immigration to kind of reincarnation, but travel is a small taste of that. And for sure, I, I think both those uh, inspire openness, what you were talking about and inspire understanding that we're all just humans and we're all in this world together. Yeah. And it gives you compassion. 
you know, we always, I do a lot of work in conservation and we always say people protect what they love. And in order to love something, they have to experience it. So I work in conservation. I work with sharks. Most people are scared of sharks, but the people that I have been able to take, (laughs) well, then I should take you. So the people that I take (laughs) and put in the water with sharks walk away with a completely different experience of those animals and what television, it's honestly the perfect analogy for, for travel and for how people see different cultures. So people are terrified of sharks because the media has always told us that they're horrible, they're man-eaters, they're going to kill you the moment you set your toe in the ocean, they're going to come out of nowhere and grab you and drag you away. And then people go out, we'll take people out to Isla Guadalupe where they dive with great white sharks and we put them in the cages and they see the sharks go by and suddenly they realize the sharks are not attacking the cage. They're not trying to rip you from the cage. They are not these bloodthirsty killers. Quite frankly, they probably wouldn't even show up if the boats didn't put fish in the water. Right. And people have gotten out of those cages and cried and had these amazing experiences because it was so different than what they've been sold. And that to me is so, and then when they go on into the world, these people have a completely different different vision of sharks and they want to help protect them. They want to speak well of them to others. They want to share the message that these are not horrible animals. They want to protect them in whatever's the way they can with legislation, with not buying shark fin soup, shark products, all of that. And I think it's the same application when you go out into the world and you travel to a region and you experience it and you meet those people, you suddenly, you now are protecting what you love because you went there, you became a part of that, that place became a part of you. And when you hear that something is happening in that country, it's not out of sight, out of mind. Wow, all this, you know, stuff is happening in Syria. Well, that's weird. I've never been to Syria. I guess who cares? If you've been there, if you met those people, if you've sh- broken bread with them and shared their food, you have a completely different feeling. Yeah. And you you then feel protective of them. You feel protective over what's happening. You feel angry and you feel horrified about the things that are happening because it's a different world. You know, it's all of our, we have fixers when we travel for the show. There are people in each location that, that help us produce the show. Uh-huh. And I, when I started seeing what was happening in, in India when coronavirus hit, but I immediately reached out to our fixer there because I felt protective of her. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, India is so population dense. If this virus hits there, these people are in so much trouble and had conversations with her. I reached out to our fixer in Ecuador, in, in Zimbabwe. I wanted to make sure they were all okay because now these are people who I care about because I have been to their countries. I have broken bread with them. I have seen how gorgeous these lands are. And I want to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about how COVID will impact us and we'll, we'll see, I guess. I, I, again, I guess because of my family history and history of Russia, I don't necessarily have this rosy image of the future where we're all united by this experience. Unfortunately, I'm... I'm of the, not necessarily persuasion, but I have a, I don't have a good feeling about this. I think, unfortunately, the situation of need and desperation will drive people to, to bad places. And I, I, I hope that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I don't know where I was taking this. Um, I was, I was going to go to the rosy place, but then I was like, <laughs> I can't. It's it's not what I feel. Um, but that's fair. It's it's a totally fair perspective because the thing is that we are entering into the unknown. Yeah. We have never been in this situation before as a planet. 
And especially with everything that's, that's available now, the news, the understanding of what's happening in each one of these places, you know, it's a completely different world and you can't compare this to the 1918 influenza. It's, we live in a different world now. And I, I think it's totally fair to be concerned about what might come out of this and how people are going to respond. We don't even know how much longer this is going to go on in the capacity that it's in right now. Yeah. The one thing I felt is that as an immigrant, I kind of have had the experience of having to start from scratch a few times, and I've had to navigate the unknown that I think, even though I have, of course, like everybody experienced the initial shock, I mm -hmm. think I'm adjusting Um And I think the experience that I've had before of having to navigate the unknown is helping. Oh, of course. I think that's the point that my parents were making when they were less concerned about this in the beginning. They obviously understand that it's an unprecedented situation and that it could really swing either way at any moment as far as good or, I mean, it's really not great coming out of this, but okay or bad. But I think their sentiment was exactly what you're saying is that because they've experienced starting over and they've experienced lack and they've gotten through it, there's an, an expectation of the resiliency of the human spirit that they understand and that they know that they have in them yeah. and that you know you have in you that some people who have not gone through the starting over or oppression or lack of, they don't know. And I think part of the fear and part of these conspiracy theories and all these things that are popping up now are a direct result of people's fear of the unknown and not knowing how the world will change, but also not knowing how they are going to adjust to it themselves. Yeah. Well, the hope is here is to rely on the, on the, on the bright side of inside yourself, right? And projecting that. Yeah. Um, okay. That's all we can do. That's really all we can do. Right. All what we have control over, at least for, for now. Exactly. Well, I think we've gone through most things. Any lingering thoughts? I think we've, I think we've like run the gauntlet and, and really covered a lot of interesting and, insightful material especially from the perspective of immigration yeah i think we did pretty good thank you so much good great. thank you well thank you for inviting me to do this it was a really wonderful talk i love i love sharing experiences like that yeah thank you That's it for today. Tune in tomorrow for the bonus episode about sharks and on Thursday for my conversation with Kinga about social media and branding. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a review. Follow us on social media. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Love you all. Peace. This is my country. My damn country. And it don't mean a thing.